Atal Gawande is a brilliant man. He is a top-notch surgeon. He is a champion for healthcare reform in the US, and he's also an outstanding author. Personally, I think his book, Being Mortal, should be required reading to anyone who knows someone who might die at some stage. Yep, everybody. Everybody should read this book because it's about what does it mean to have a good death. But this podcast isn't about that. And I want to refer back to an earlier Atago One Day book called The Checklist Manifesto. That book talks about the power of using a checklist to create better outcomes in hospitals and specifically to stop unnecessary deaths during surgery. One of the things that was fascinating about the stories in the book was to learn about the resistance from surgeons in particular to this very seemingly minor change. It was a threat to their status in a similar way that surgeons 180 years ago resisted the push to have them wash their hands as a way of reducing the spread of germs. Now, checklists aren't just about the surgery, they're about change. And I am a change geek. I love wrestling with how to make people and systems change. But it does seem to me that trying to make changes in healthcare is one of the stickiest challenges of them all. Welcome to Two Pages with MBS. This is the podcast where brilliant people read the best two pages from a favorite book, a book that has moved them, a book that has shaped them. Richard Winters, MD, is an emergency physician at the Mayo Clinic, but like Etel Gawande, but wait, there's more. He's also the Director of Leadership Development for the Mayo Clinic Care Network. He's also a healthcare executive coach, and he's also an author. His new book is You're the Leader, now what? And all of this work, all of these different identities seem to stem from a single seed. You know, if you if you were to read my statement to, um, to get into medical school, and it's really talking about caring for people, caring for patients, and that incredible opportunity to do so. As Richard trained to be an emergency physician, he started seeing the gap between the theory and reality. There are some things that aren't working as you think that they could. There are some things that just, you know, you, you try to order this, it doesn't happen. You, you would like this to happen for the patient, it doesn't happen. And then the way to change it is to, to step into leadership roles. So what's lost and what's gained when you step into a leadership role? I'm not taking care of one patient anymore. Now I'm taking care of populations of patients. And so even as I'm sitting in a meeting and going over agendas that may have nothing to do with direct patient care, I know I'm... Uh, helping to create a system that is helping to take care of large numbers of patients. Here, Richard discovered an interesting and important parallel between caring for patients with a team and being a leader. So being a physician is you could just go into the room, take a history, write some orders. Um, mm -hmm. You know, we don't write suggestions as physicians, we write <laughs> orders. That's right. And then leave the room. Um, but if that's all we're going to do, it's not going to be work out so well. Um, mm. You know, we're walking into the room, we're listening to the patient, we're trying to find out things that we're missing, working with the team, um, we're, we're gathering suggestions from the whole and then, and then moving things forward. That is really similar to that of the leadership sort of space. And so there are some leaders, uh, and, uh, and oftentimes as people step into those roles, there's this sense that what you're going to do is you're going to make some decisions, you're going to write some orders and move on. But it's right. really the same same sorts of things. It's being able to sit there, listen, get input from other individuals. And, and certainly there are times as an emergency physician where um, situations need me just to decide 
and yeah. and help push things along and and along and certainly as a, a leader the same situations arise but they're very complementary so you realize that a medical career needs to be more than just the one-to-one interaction of the the, the medical exchange or the, your call to leadership when you look back do you identify people who were role models for you early role models as leaders that's a great question for me it's um it's all along the way uh, you know each day there are interactions and there are there are situations where i'm in where i'm thinking you know this is how i, I want to respond and it's not my um time during the meeting or it's not my space during the conversation and i see someone else step up and respond in a way that is so much better <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> and it's i mean that's it really is that, and so it's not like reading about some uh, named leader um, in a, you know in a book. It's really all these little interactions that we have, and just noticing some people able to navigate these situations so much better. And so, how yeah. can I do that? And how how was I thinking? What space was I in where I was thinking that that this other approach um, was the way to go? And that's really, I think, those have been the, the most impactful things for me. Is just all those individuals that we work with along the way that. Yeah navigate so much better. I've, I'm curious, Richard, whether your stance on leadership, this conversation that we've just started is in some ways countercultural. And here's why I say that my experience of working in health systems, trying to bring in coaching or some versions of leadership tends to go along something like this. The administrators are kind of keen about it. The nurses are keen about it. Um, the supporting functions are keen about it. The doctors don't want to have a bar of it. They're like, look, <laughs> I have my status. I have my authority. I have studied years to be able to give orders. Why would I learn anything else? And there's always a kind of teeth sucking moment where everybody else goes, yeah, but you know, the physicians are a bit of a nightmare in terms of trying to do this stuff. They just do whatever the hell they want. And if I think of reading, um, Atul Gatawande's book, The Checklist Manifesto, which talks about trying to change a culture in an organization, uh, in a medical organization, the resistance he met from surgeons in particular, who felt that their status was being challenged by relying on a checklist. So I've got, I've got one experience around this is what, this is what medical leadership is, and it's actually giving orders. Um, I'm curious to know, am I a little outdated? Are you countercultural? Are you leading the charge? Where, where do you stand, do you think, in terms of leadership in the medical, in the medical system, the medical context? Yeah. It's, so I think of each of us, as we go about our lives, are, have areas of expertise. And so as a physician, mm. as an emergency physician, I can walk into an emergency department and take care of anyone at any time with any, uh, any problem. And, uh, and that's a, in an environment in that space where I, I really do need to make decisions and do so fast yeah. um, and, and write orders and all those sorts of things. And as, as we talk about many of the, you know, the, the surgeon uh, that you referenced, uh, same thing, they go into the OR and they, they need to take care of the patient and do so well. And, and there's a process, like an expertise that they have to go through to do that. 
Um, and you were talking about the administrator. The administrator has expertise. The administrator, let's, exactly. let's like step back and can look at the Excel spreadsheet and can look at the finances and and can look at how things fit together. And and they can come in. They and they can also be like an emergency physician or a surgeon and say, well, this is what we need right. to do. I just read this book. Um, <laughs> I, I'm not I'm not sure that it is the the physician nature. I think it is the nature of any of us as we're in a space where we're feeling like there's just the the solutions based on our own experience and this is what we need to yeah. do, like just invoke my expertise. Yeah. And, and so, I, you know, I think, and you know, what is a leader to me, leaders are not individuals who create followers. Leaders are individually individuals who create other leaders. It's the, the idea is to, you know, get the whole. And, and so, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think that, and and within healthcare, I have seen such outstanding leaders, and and yes. these are our physician, let's let's say leaders, who um, they can go in and command a situation and take care of of a, of a patient in in the best way, um, and then also go in uh, to a meeting and step back, and as opposed to commanding and and, and using yeah. their expertise, they can facilitate and bring in you know perspectives, and so yeah, yeah. I think, and I so I I think. Healthcare has a lot of command structure in it just by the nature. Military has that. You know, there's many industries that have that. But in all those spaces, the the organizations that do well are the organizations that have the leaders that can step away. Um, you know, I love the step up to the balcony and, yes. and look at the dance floor from a you know broader perspective and and take it yeah. take it in. Yeah, yeah. I think in in this conversation. I, what I hear are echoes of a couple of the thought leaders that have influenced me, Dan, Daniel Goldman, talking about leadership that gets results and saying, you know, great leaders know how to move between the five or six different roles that's required of them. And, but most leaders only know how to move between two or three of them. And Ron Heifetz and his idea of getting up on the balcony to kind of see, see what's going on. Uh, can you explain a little more about, let's, let's, let's tag onto that idea, because I think some of the listeners haven't heard this from me before. Um, what does it mean to get up on the balcony? Mm. Let's start there. What do you, when you say get up on the balcony, what are you talking about here? Are you literally on a balcony staring down at an operation that's <laughs> happening? I don't think so. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, and I, you know, so what you're going to find as you talk to me is that my, my, uh, my, the way I'm thinking about the world is like all these different metaphors from all these wonderful individuals that I've, I've read and yeah. kind of weaving them together. And Ron Heifetz is wonderful um, in that regard. And so the, this idea is that, so each of us, as we go about our day, we have a perspective of what's going on, and in the moment, we we react and we um, you know we respond, and, and this is something that's very helpful for us. As you're crossing the street, you you, you need to stop and look both ways and figure out what's going exactly, on, so yeah. you don't get hit by something. And, and as again, as I'm an emergency physician in, in the ED, um, taking care of patients, there are things I just need to respond to. Um, and as we're in this space, um, we're interacting with our colleagues, and our colleagues are kind of on this dance floor of our experience, they're hearing the music and they're dancing, they're responding. And as we see them respond, we uh, identify how we're going to respond. And this is sort of the, the dance that goes on. And it's very much in real time, as you and I are talking, we're having this conversation. Um, but isn't it nice if we could take some time to get off the dance floor, off the space where we need to just respond in the moment and step up to this kind of metaphorical balcony. And, yeah. and what this is then is, as we step up to the balcony, we're actually finding a space 
where we can think differently, a space where we don't have to react reflexively, a, a space mm. where we can think about what's going on in our world, um, either in the moment or in the past, and, and think about maybe other ways of, of considering it and seeing different parts of the dance floor that we might not have seen in the moments. And, and as we do that, um, we can likely make better decisions. We'll make, likely have a better sense of how we can be most effective where our efficacy is. Yeah. And so I love that. And the thing I like about it too is it's one of these things where as I'm sitting in a meeting and we're just going around the room and I'm thinking, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're right, that sort of thing. I can, yeah. in the moment, as I'm dancing and as I'm having those thoughts, think, you know, wait, 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 maybe step up to the balcony here and let's gain some broader perspective of why this individual might think this or what they're trying to accomplish. And so the metaphor is yeah. very helpful in the moment and also as a reflection in the past. How did you build the capacity to get up on the balcony, Richard? Because don't think to talk about this in theory. It's hard not to be swept up by the music and to be in the moment and be dancing and responding and reacting. Yeah. This is one of these things that I think is practiced, honestly. And yeah. so as I read a metaphor like that, it just unlocks this world of mm -hmm. possibilities in a different way of, of being. And so one of the reasons I went into coaching, one of the reasons I became an executive coach was, um, you know, as I was, I was in an MBA class and I thought, okay, coaching, we're going to talk about dream catchers and feelings and things <laughs> like that. It's, it's just yeah. kind of, but what I found was a way to think about how I think and a, mm. a way of uh, thinking and helping others think about how they think and how to be more effective. It's, it's just like, it's just this balcony space. And yeah. so um, that sort of kind of style, that experience as I'm being coached now, um, as I have, uh, you know, with, uh, as I meet with a therapist or as I meet with an individual who um, yes. helps me think about things from a broader perspective, they help me to get on the dance floor uh, in my daily kind of life as I'm, as I'm writing, as I'm journaling, that helps me, um, you know, get off the dance floor and onto the balcony. It's just, uh, yeah. yeah, the practice. I think, I think it is practice. And I, I like, I hadn't really thought of this before, but for me, what coaching often does is it just holds time and space. So there is place to think. And that, moment in itself is almost what starts drifting you upwards to the balcony um because so often when we're reacting where we're, our thinking is pretty cursory as we're in we're in a response to what's going on um richard what, what have you chosen to read for us ah uh, yes um the heart aroused a book by david white mm -hmm. a wonderful individual and uh it, it, there's just individuals and he is a, a poet by nature yes. um and in practice, I guess. And then also um, around the poetry writes these wonderful books that, and this one in particular examines kind of corporate life and each of us as we enter corporate life, um, kind of where our heart is and whether that's mm. being expressed. And how did you come across the book? Where did you discover it? Um, yeah, that's hard to know. I mean, I think it's, uh, it's either I, it was a tweet or I heard someone say something um, yeah. or I read an article. It's just, you, you kind of have this Showed filter up. on the, yeah. 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 And how, and I love this. And, and I, we've had a few people read David White on this show and, um, and David White, of course, has, when he reads his own stuff, first of all, he has a great Irish accent. So it immediately sounds, you know, 1.3% or you know, 30% <laughs> wiser and smarter just because he says that. And then he's also got that habit where he just repeats some of his lines. He always yeah. repeats everything twice. So 
just for the sake of time, please don't repeat everything twice to kind of get into your David White style. Um, but out of curiosity, what two pages, I mean, how did you pick the two pages to read? Um, so within this book, he uses this metaphor uh, in this chapter about Beowulf. And yes. Beowulf is, and I'm just, I'm going to, I, so yes, I'm a physician at Mayo Clinic, but I graduated from high school with perhaps a C minus D plus. I mean, I, I was not an individual who was a very, I was interested in punk rock and skateboards and things like that at the time. And nice. so as I'm interpreting Beowulf, just understand that I'm coming from that sort of background, <laughs> but it's this, it's this idea that, um, there's the king, and throughout the day, um, within his kingdom, they're 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 making decisions and having parties, and things are going well. But then at night, this monster rises from the depths of the sea and right. basically eats the villagers, and and right. and so it's, and this is repeatedly happening. And and what the 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 monsters in the depth reflect is basically the fears and worries um, and the limiting assumptions that that we all hold. And so. I like that sort of that that sort of idea. That yeah, yeah. yeah, it's powerful. I actually remember seeing David White talking about this, talking about Grendel the monster and Beowulf and the battle and what it all means. I was like, that that's fantastic. Well, Richard, I'm excited to hear you read this. Um, I know this, these are wise words. So over to you, um, Richard Winters, reading from David White's book, The Heart Aroused. No man or woman standing at the edge of their own inner pool of darkness is exempt from the wish to pass by this stage, to find a safe, dry land bridge and walk across. We intuit in those waters the potentialities and dreams of a lifetime, but finding them hidden by a strangely irrational depth of fear, we are not sure they are worth the grief. Besides, our fine professional clothes were not designed for entering uncharted and muddy depths. In the business world, there are anxieties enough without adding to them. Appearances are paramount. There's very little tolerance for downtime. There are things we also feel good about. The relief from other people's emotional burdens in a professional environment can be refreshing. We feel reluctant to let our own unresolved problems continually wash over our colleagues. But human existence is half light and half dark and our creative possibilities seem strangely linked to that part of us we keep in the dark. Trying to bring out our creativity in the workplace, we suddenly realize how unwelcoming a professional corporate setting can be to the darker soul struggles of human existence. But simply turning away from these shadows, no matter how professional our environment, does not mean that they cease to exist. Refusing to admit the more elemental energies of the human psyche because of narrow interpretation of what is professional, we construct, in effect, a kind of internal pressurized reactor where poisonous leakage is simply a matter of time and human error. Sooner or later, the trapped energies will emerge, run our lives in unconscious ways. But we live in a forlorn hope that we can keep it all trapped and contained forever. Business and politics profess to be hard-headed, but how many businesses and even countries have been ruined by decisions that were ostensibly hard-headed which had more to do with the reluctance of those in charge to face fears or vulnerabilities. This reluctance to enter the deeper waters of the psyche is not confined to modern participants of corporate life. 1,500 years ago, in the old English poem Beowulf, an anonymous bardic author confronted his listeners with the frightening image of this inner lake. His listeners were almost certainly rough warriors, used to getting their hands dirty. He found them 
equally shy of that dark water. Uh, wonderful. Thank you for thank you for reading that so beautifully. You know, he talks about trapped energies. I'm wondering what that passage releases for you. So as we talk about individuals that have been very influential to me, it's um, mm. Robert Keegan and Lisa Lasko Leahy. Mm. Exactly. Um, and their work in adult levels of development and their work on an immunity to change yep. um, has been very, very helpful for me in just thinking about, again, how we think. And one of the things that they do with this immunity to change process is it, it gave me this sort of way of thinking about how to look at fears and worries that we hold and how to help others to see that. Before I had learned this, this was a very difficult thing for me to do, like just to enter mm. the emotions of others and how to go into the space and feel comfortable doing it. Yeah. Um, but this, this idea that we each, each of us have these fears and worries that they just, they, they're operational. They're a part of us. And as we're making decisions, Oftentimes our decisions are, are led by these fears and worries. And, and so how do I identify them and how are they limiting to us? And how do we kind of move over the um, assumptions that are created by them it has been quite powerful for me. And so this, this book kind of brings that up. It resonates. There's, yeah. Yeah. What has allowed you to explore you know, the muddy depths, the dark? Have you had yeah. a, what, what's, what's allowed you to step into that unknown, unsure, fearful place? Yeah, so, and, and this is the, again, the wonderful thing about coaching is just having these conversations with amazing individuals, very effective, um, who are, are finding that they're limited in some ways. And so, for example, the conversation with a, a very effective leader who tends to speak a little too much during meetings, who tends to um, kind of dominate the conversation, who tends to write the agenda and get things done. Um, and at this point, it's becoming somewhat limiting uh, mm. for them. Um, the individual who feels like they're a little bit afraid to speak up, they don't know this room so well, and um, they're going to withhold what they say. Um, yeah. And that is limiting them. And so you have these individuals that come to you with these sorts of issues. And right. What is it? What is it in the thinking that is that feels unsafe about this? And so for the one who speaks too much, um, it's the fear of not being heard. It's the fear of not being seen as a leader. It's a, a fear of wasting their time. It's all these sorts of things that lurk in, in you know, kind of the depths of, of, the, of their thinking. And so and the individual who's not speaking up, it's the fear of angering someone, a fear of maybe not knowing everything about the situation and saying something wrong. These sorts yeah. of fears are operational. And so yeah. to, for them to be able to go into the depths of the, of the lake and to be able to see these fears and maybe to question whether they're real or not. Mm. Um, and, and certainly sometimes they're operational and they make sense. But at other times, maybe these are vestiges. Um, these are, are not so helpful. And maybe these, these fears, these monsters are not so real. And as we shine a light on them, uh, all of a sudden they feel a little bit more comfortable speaking up or they feel a little bit more comfortable not speaking up and, and they become more effective. And, and this is not just with individuals. We see this organizationally. Yeah. Um, 
So I can think about an organization I was helping who wanted to improve their well-being, decrease burnout. Yeah. And yeah. great, great plans. And they they went through this whole process. And then, but yet some things weren't getting done. And why weren't things getting done? The group actually held fears and worries. The group had things that were holding them back. The f- the fear that they just don't have enough time to get things done yeah, and yeah. also stomp out the daily fires. The fear mm-hmm. that, that, that maybe they don't have the support of senior leaders, the, the, the worries that if they do this, then this other group's going to be offended. And yeah. they hadn't confronted those issues together and that, the, you know, that just limits them. And so that is the space I find as myself, as I'm thinking about my own effectiveness and as yeah. I'm working with others is what are the fears and worries? What are these things that are holding you back? Mm. Um, you know, I love the book Atomic Habits. I think it's yeah. a wonderful book. It's a really good book at getting things done. And yet we can read that book and still find that our atomic habits blow up. You know, th- things don't happen. And why is that? Because right. while we have this path, this kind of process, this checklist to get things done, there's yeah. some fears and, and worries underneath that are just uh, exactly. impeding us from being able to sustain it. You know, one of my books, I talk about the difference between easy change and hard change. And hard change is my attempt to articulate what um, um, uh, Keegan and, and Lesky Leahy talk about an immunity change, which is like, and, and Ron Heifetz as well as kind of heritage to their work, which is like, this is the stuff that isn't just about additive learning. You need to do something transformational. An easy change is more additive. You've got to figure out what the thing is and start doing it. And Atomic Habits fits nicely with easy change because it creates yeah. structure and discipline and repetition starts wiring stuff in but falls down with hard change because it's not about building a habit it's about dealing with fear and let me ask you about that when you when you when you're able to name or to see a fear or an anxiety that may be influencing your behavior in a way that's not as effective as it might be is the goal to let it go or is the goal to integrate it in some ways i'm wondering if you have an opinion around putting it down or kind of absorbing it in some way. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think the, and this is what the, the David White passage is so helpful for me in Beowulf is what happens when we put it down. It's, it's, it's the monster that still lurks in, in the dark. Mm. And so it's, it does not get put down. I mean, this fear and these worries <laughs> are, they're just, they're like, there. I'm coming back from the lake. I'll yeah. see you tomorrow night. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, but I think we can, I don't know if this is maybe befriend the monster a bit and you know, shine right. a light on it. And understand that there are fears and worries that are quite operational. That I mean, meaning that they're effective, that they they help us. That the the fears are not unfounded; they're actually real. And so, yeah. uh, for some of those fears, you know, I, I'm afraid of talking to my boss because they'll um, be mean to me and and uh, say no. Some people work with bosses who are that way, and that fear is actually quite right. But but given yeah. that, then then what? Like, what can you do about that? Now now, yeah. how are you going to proceed? So you can't work with that boss about it. But how can we kind of influence the environment? Um, so I think uh, the the nice thing about naming the fears is no longer are they this dark thing that's pushing us kind of, you know, the program within our, our kind of robotic, um, you know, mm-hmm. operating system. Um, but they're now uh, maybe an app or something that we can play around with and, and tweak. And maybe there's some functionality there that we can find. What can you teach us about how to, how to integrate our fears? Because honestly, you know, you name the monster as Grendel. 
you don't really want to go and embrace the monster. You want to shun the monster. But I think it's true that so much of this is around recognizing that the fear is inherent to who you are rather than separate from who you are somehow. Um, yeah. I'm just wondering, you know, as you've managed your own professional and personal fears and have moved beyond them, um, how, how do you learn to integrate that anxiety and fear so it's no longer crippling or limiting? Yeah. Yeah, it's not because you can shine the light on the monster, but is it real or is it not? And so I think the first being conscious of it, um, understanding mm. when it arises, understanding that this situation, this is what's coming up. And then I think this tiny experiments. It's really, um, mm. I'm afraid of speaking about the individual who's afraid to speak up during a meeting when they don't know someone. Um, and because the fear is that they don't know enough or the fear is that yeah. they, um, yeah. So you, you test that you, you find a space where maybe it's a little bit more safe and you find ways to, to test that fear to maybe you do speak up and right. say something. Maybe you say right. something in a different, you know, in a, in a different way. And as you test that fear, then all of a sudden the monster, you know, kind of the, the grip, uh, it releases a bit and yeah. There still may be some situations, but you just take small step forward. And and if it doesn't work out, then there's some learnings there. So what was it about that situation? Uh, why mm. didn't it work out? Um, how might I approach it differently? Um, those that's It's just the way. It's this practice of seeing the fear, seeing how it operates, and then testing, kind of poking at the monster and seeing what the monster does in response. Yeah, poking at the monster. No, I'm not sure I want to follow <laughs> up on that invitation, but I, I get what you're saying there. <laughs> Um, Richard, to, to shift the focus just a little bit, mm. a lot of leadership is written for individuals. You are a leader. You are on the verge of being a leader. You, you're an experienced leader. Now what? And mm. it's inviting people to step up into, to identify and to step up into that role. And yet so much of our behavior is not just a pure individual act. It's shaped by the systems that we're in. How do you find the balance between what it means to change yourself and what it means to try and change your system? Yeah. So I think as a leader, there, there's kind of different domains that you're thinking about. One is how can I be most effective? How am I thinking? How am I getting right. things done? Um, there's areas of my expertise that I just that I need to decide as a leader and get things you know to, uh, done. So that's kind of one domain. Then there are the conversations that we have one to one with others. And so, how how can I be most effective with this colleague who is thinking about a change in their career? With this colleague who is burned out? With this colleague mm -hmm. um, who's uh, having difficulties and uh, and maybe a bit disruptive? Uh, and then the, the there's the other space, which is how do I help lead teams and organizations to overcome these really complex, mm. challenging issues? And and both the one-to-one -one conversation space and the leading team space, there's a little bit of expertise in there, but a lot of it is is facilitating and stepping back yes. and and trying to bring the whole together. And so really mm. leadership is not standing on the balcony and pointing what to do leadership is bringing others up to the balcony with you so right. that together we can see the situation with all of its agreements and disagreements with all of our different 
uh, expert perspectives together and make a decision and move forward. And so I think uh, that's that's what our, our good leaders do. I mean, they weave in and out of of uh, their expertise and and then also facilitating and coaching and and bringing others up to the balcony. You know, the, the metaphor that's sometimes used around any training, actually, any kind of behavioral training for sure, is around goldfish. And it's like, it doesn't matter if you take the goldfish out of the dirty, mucky water in the goldfish bowl, and you polish up the goldfish and you give the goldfish new skills. As soon as you put it back in the water, it goes back to being that dirty, confused, slightly blinded goldfish. Um, what have you learned about shifting culture? Yeah, I mean, first of all, I'm trying to get the image of like uh, you taking a goldfish out of the water and like <laughs> toweling it down. Exactly, exactly. Shampooing yeah. it, a little manicure, yeah. all that, the, whole, the whole thing. Yeah. And so, so I think of culture as being values plus behavior. I mean, that's just, mm. and so uh, each of us, uh, the reason I'm a male clinic is I'm, I'm very much aligned with the values. That's what attracted me here is, is right. the, the, our core values and yeah. the, but many of us are attracted to organizations that have these values. And then we find that actually the behaviors <laughs> don't, they're not matching, you know, turns out they don't uh, have those values. They just talk about having those values, yeah. which is different. Great yeah. screensaver. Really. And the poster yeah. on the wall, remarkable. And yet, you know, you say teamwork, but yet you just made these decisions without including any of us. Yeah. You know, the, yeah. Those are the sorts of things that we see. And so I think of really the culture as being, the behavior of those leaders that reflect the the values of the organization. And for me, when I say leaders, I'm not talking about formal leadership titles. Like, you know, I'm, I'm talking about leaders at all levels and each of us are, each of us has an influence on the organization. And so mm. are we embodying the values that we, that we do read about and we do identify with? Are we actually embodying those? Are we displaying those? Yeah. And and again, this comes comes up to these fears and worries that we have. And sometimes when we're in fears of and, and struggling, um, the the monster keeps us from exhibiting actually what we would yeah. believe, um, you know, in in recent times. And so I, that that is it. I mean, I think sour culture yeah. is a result of uh, just behavior that is not aligned with with values. You've written a book on leadership. And uh, it's your first book. So quite rightly, it's a kind of culmination of X number of years of learning this stuff and practicing this stuff and being taught this stuff and struggling with this stuff. I'm wondering, I mean, when you write a book, it, it kind of forces you to codify what you know. As you wrote it, what was the most surprising thing you discovered about what you believe about leadership? I mean, the process of writing is a process of reflection mm. and the the book really comes from programs that i deliver i facilitate I, we take leaders who are having really difficult issues bring them in as and, and help them solve their own problems and so i could trial things experiments uh, as i was moving along in in the program but then in writing it how do i convert this to word um, mm. How do I honestly, as you know, we've been spe speaking about, there are just so many wonderful individuals that I've read in the past and so many metaphors. How do I do them right? right. Um, there's this limited space and I just don't, I want to make sure that I'm approaching this as, as well as, as I can. I think what, as it, as you see it in a book, as I see it in a book, what I've written, there's, there's just so much opportunity for each of us 
as individuals to grow. And and for me, and I think uh, as individuals read these, the, the book, you'll find that there are these processes from individuals that just really help us to grow, uh, to help us kind of face some of these challenges, to become yeah. uh, wiser. And as we put these things together, like you do in a book, um, it's just, um, yeah, it's inspirational to just to stand on the shoulders of those individuals that have, have helped help me think through some of my difficult yeah. times. I love that. Um, Richard, it's been so, so nice to talk to you. So thank you. Um, a final question I have, what needs to be said that hasn't yet been said in this conversation between the two of us? I like the, what hasn't been said component of it. Um, what needs to be said, what hasn't been said. I think that actually for me requires a little bit more reflection and, and so what hasn't been said, this is like go to the dance floor or go from the dance floor to the balcony. Yeah. What hasn't been said is I'm going to be thinking about as we finish the talk and I'm going to be thinking about um, your questions. I'm going to be thinking about my responses and I'm going to be figuring out like what hasn't been said or what I might be able to say um, differently as we move on. That's just, that's what we're doing. I honestly wasn't really expecting the interview to end up with Beowulf and monsters lurking in the darkness, under the water, in the depths, but I love that it did. The last line from his reading, his listeners were almost certainly rough warriors used to getting their hands dirty, and he found them equally shy of that dark water. <laughs> I love that, that dark water, equally shy. So the question I have for you is the question I asked Richard. You know, what's allowed you to step into that unknown, unsure, and fearful place? But perhaps I can push you a little further. I'm trying to push me a little further here. So who do you need to be to step into that place? Who do you need to have by your side? Because so often we shouldn't travel alone. We need to travel with others. What do you need to hold in your hand? And what do you need to release? Carl Jung wrote that the gold is in the darkness. And I think that's a very powerful insight. I think it's an adventure worth exploring. If you enjoyed this conversation with Richard, you probably did. Let me recommend two others that might strike your fancy. Um, Stephen D'Souza, uh, another leadership executive, um, uh, another man with training beyond just leadership how to be and how not to be yourself with Stephen. That was a great conversation. He is truly fascinating. And then with Kim Scott, best known for her book, Radical Candor, an interview called When to Wave the Purple Flag. If you would like to learn more about Richard and his work and his leadership approach and his new book, richardwinters.com is his website. Do check that out. Thank you for listening. I love having you as a listener to the podcast. I appreciate it. Um, thank you for recommending interviews and sharing them. If you're so moved to do that, um, I'm on a quest, not quite Beowulfian, but a quest nonetheless to try and grow the listenership of this podcast. And word of mouth is really the best way that it happens. Um, thank you also if you've taken the time to give the podcast a rating and a review. It's a small act and it's a meaningful act. I do appreciate it. Um, let me just finish by saying you're awesome and you're doing great.